Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. And I am here. We're doing a part two this week because part one was so good, I could not get enough. Um, and my guest and uh, friend now, Joel Manby, has been willing to come back on. So let's jump into a part two. Last week, if you missed the show, make sure you can check it out on demand anywhere where you get podcasts for The Driven Entrepreneur. You'll find our last episode with Joel former CEO of SeaWorld Entertainment, former CEO of Saab USA with General Motors, um, MBA from Harvard Business School. Um, the list of accolades go on and on, but Joel spent over 20 plus years in, uh, in the CEO world and space and uh, teaching and consulting in that space. And of course, we're talking about also his new book, Love Works by Joel Manby, put out by Zonervan. Uh, very excited about that and been loving the book as well. Thank you for the gift, my friend. I've been uh, digging into that in the last weeks a little more since our conversation. But Joel, welcome back. How are you? I'm fantastic. Great to be here, Matt. Yeah, always, uh, very, very blessed. Anytime somebody says yes to a part two, uh, makes me happy. And the reason we did that is because we started getting into all of your, your career and everything that we learn as a CEO when you're talking about the work in the automotive industry. And then we got into the theme parks because you've also spent many years running theme park uh, organizations. Yes. And when you got brought in to, it was 2015, I believe, into SeaWorld, is that right? Yes. To help with the turnaround. Um, that sparked a much longer conversation. I thought we can devote a whole episode just to this. So... Let's start at the beginning here. And I know you weren't around for this beginning parts, but when I look at SeaWorld, you know, this is a thing that ever since I was a kid, I'm 40 years old today. I remember going to SeaWorld. I grew up in Orange County, California. My dad's family's in San Diego. Of course, SeaWorld was started in San Diego as well as opening up in Orlando and then San Antonio. We have, you know, the, the, the SeaWorld Park, it's founded in 1964 uh, by George Millay, Milt Shred, Ken Norris, and David DeMott. Um, and they said they planned as an underwater restaurant. Have you, when you got in, did you hear any stories or anyone who was there or maybe in a relationship to some of the, the founders' concepts and visions of what this was originally going to be? Yeah, it, it was, you, you nailed it. I mean, that's great history that it started as a restaurant concept. George Millay, I've, I've talked to before he passed. He was a great entrepreneur. Um, but they also wanted to bring the magic of the sea, which at the time was, was hard for most average Americans, meaning average in pay, to get to, right? They couldn't see dolphins and whales and stingrays. So he wanted to bring that. And he also had a vision that we always try to maintain that the, the 
revenue or the, the, the profit would be shared back to nonprofits who were focused on ocean conservation or animal conservation in some way, shape or form, which you know, we, we always were that way. Uh, unfortunately, SeaWorld didn't market it much, but even as I left, we were the number one rescue organization in the world for marine rescue animals. So I think George Millay's vision from the very beginning expanded way, way beyond a restaurant and uh, has become a really strong organization again, finally. You know, it's incredible to look at, you know, a company that at one point, you know, is valued at 1.4 billion that you were running. Um, and it started with an initial investment of, I believe, one and a half million dollars, 45 employees, and they wanted to have this restaurant. Now, when I think underwater restaurant, the closest I can imagine, um, what's the, now the name of course has escaped me. What's the restaurant, the jungle themed restaurant, like in Disney, downtown yeah, yeah. Disney, um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, if they, uh, Hard, it's not Hard Rock Cafe. Um, <laughs> gosh, I can see it too. I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on it. I'm so sorry. See how that works. And this, and, this, and this is the problem with radio. So everyone's shouting at us right now. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You got monkeys and you, and you got uh, Rainforest Cafe. Bam. Rainforest, there you go. It was just so right I think of Rainforest Cafe, but like surrounded by aquarium. I think that's beautiful. And then saying right away, giving the give back initiative. One of the things I didn't realize, and it seems so obvious, but yeah, you said they're one of the number one um, organization that is, how, how would you put that? They're taking care of their rescue organization in the world, yeah. marine animal rescue. And I, I feel embarrassed to say this, but even, you know, into my probably thirties, I didn't realize that say when I went to like an aquarium, once I started bringing my young son, right, we, my wife and I would bring our kiddies one, two, three years old to these local aquariums, Long Beach Aquarium. I realized most of those are really set up as a nonprofit, as a marine rescue first, Yes. And then in an additional way for revenue and Hey, we have all these animals to rescuing. Why not let the public enjoy them? So it's sort of rescue first theme park second, so to speak. Yes. When SeaWorld began the process of getting their first animals, do you know how they went about that? Was it, they were a hundred percent rescue at the time? Was it, how did that really work to get those first sea lions? And it's interesting because this, this goes back to almost the, uh, the, the original question, if you want to call it original sin, right? Um, probably uh, 90% of the manatees, uh, probably uh, 75 to 80% of any seal at a, at a SeaWorld park is a rescue animal. However, the original orcas were not, they were captured and, but ever since 1975, I mean, it's been over 40 years, SeaWorld hasn't taken anything from the wild unless it was injured and in injuries, governments, have to approve it. No, nobody can just go take an animal and rescue it. All has to be registered with the government, so it's all above board. But because we had that orca um, and we started breeding them, it became a hot, just a hot potato basically, and grew and grew an animal activists against SeaWorld. But still in any given day, any non-marine mammal pretty much um, have been, a high percentage of them have been basically rehabilitated and re-released into the park. Because another thing people don't realize, Matt, is if you rescue a wild animal, the government controls whether it's kept or not. If it can be re-released, it is released. If it, ha if it can't, the government then assigns where it goes. So all this kind of noise in the system about, well, SeaWorld just rescues because it gets to keep the animals that can't be, that's just not true. We don't even control where they go. And but back to your, your ultimate question, I think you know, if everything was rescue, 
there wouldn't be an issue with SeaWorld, but people point back to the original sin and say, well, these animals should be wild. They shouldn't be captured. And it gets dicey because we haven't taken anything from the wild, but to stop it, you have to stop them from breeding, which is a biological need and desire, or at least a desire on their part, on the animal's parts. And so it gets very tricky ethically and also from a business standpoint. It, it really is. And I think that's something that we can draw. There's a lot of principle in there for, I mean, general business today or, or running your life. It's, we're talking the 1960s, this thing getting founded by 75, uh, you're saying, you know, it's like, this is within 10 years. And the 70s and the 80s, very different culture, very different everything that's going on. So we have, you have, you have animals in the wild. Okay. Hey, if it needs a rescue, we're going to help rehabilitate it. And Hey, if you can't re-release it here, we have them. And then you can come look at them. That seems like a ecological win-win, but even so it's like you said, stop breeding versus start. And I don't want, again, I don't want to make this about a debate of, is it right or wrong? Cause that's not really our purpose. Right. Um, you and I know, I think that life is a little more complicated very often than it's right, wrong, whether it's politics, business, Whatever we're talking about, it's not this is right, this is wrong in right. so many scenarios. There's a few, of course. But in this case, SeaWorld starts as, as this, now we start to, to, you're rescuing animals, and then you said stop them from breeding. Right. So you actually have to put in place, hey, you're not allowed to mate now. But I'm guessing in the early days, it was like, well, yeah, they wanted to mate. And then people don't remember this, you know, in, in 2020, you're, oh, that was terrible. But when I was a kid, it was like, it was big news to go, oh my gosh, you know, the, the, the killer whales, you know, they were, they, there was a baby born in SeaWorld. And can you believe this baby's there? And everyone's excited about it because here are these rescue animals that now got to breed a, a special baby. And well, that should be released to the wild. Can you speak to just, just for a moment on, would that be a good thing? Is that doable? Is that a bad thing? Yes, yeah, so baby or releasing or how do you, how do you deal with it? <laughs> here's, a, here's a good uh, factoid, Matt. In the as far as I know, and I'm very well read on it. Consider myself an expert now after three years with SeaWorld, reading everything I could. But there is no documentation in the history of mankind that a marine mammal born in captivity was released into the wild successfully. They do they don't know how to feed. They don't they 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 are fed fish. They're fed frozen fish. They don't know what to do in the wild. Their antibodies aren't built up, but it's never been done successfully. The only time it's been done successfully is a wild animal uh, who is injured, rehabilitated, and then released again. And even that, when it gets past six months in captivity or in human care to get rehabilitated, the results become sketchier and sketchier. The longer they're in, under human care, the less likely they will survive again in the wild. So the, the concept of releasing a will that's a whale or a dolphin that's always been under human care is ludicrous at the surface. Unfortunately, it's very easy to market. And in essence, SeaWorld got behind the marketing game. Uh, PETA, although I consider them a, a terrorist organization, and, and I don't mean that, it, it's just their tactics. I'm sure their hearts are good. Their tactics are like terrorists and what they do to companies and businesses. Um, versus let's say Humane Society United States, which I'm still good friends with their CEO. And that's part of the story we should go into. I partnered with with Wayne and the Humane Society. I think they go about animal care issues in a much more logical, methodological way that they get done. They get stuff done and they get great decisions made. But so here's the essence of the issue. Um, they can't be released. 
the 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 C pin idea, putting them in the C pin is fraught with difficulties. You, you, you basically, they want to build a pen around ocean and waters. You've got to get the approvals. The government has to support it. Who's going to pay for it? Um, again, they're still in captivity, so to speak. They're I was still, just going to say, they're still in captivity. So it's almost like, what's the difference? Let's just bring some it fact, they're less They're less healthy, but they're in captivity. I mean, because of the germs, they're not used to, uh, the, you know, they don't have many natural, they're not really prey usually. There's not sharks that close. But Anyway, that's not a solution. So here, from an entrepreneur listening to this program, here's how bad this situation was. You basically have whatever your brand is built on, and whoever's listening, what is your entire brand built on? That was our biggest asset, like you said. Shamu, killer whales, come see the new baby orcas. All of a sudden, within a 10-year period, public sentiment has shifted so much on marine mammals in captivity and Blackfish the movie came out, which is a shockumentary that makes SeaWorld look very bad. It's it's well, very- I remember that was 2013. Well, I remember when that was released, everyone was talking about, and it's the same as any new sensationalism even today that people will usually not read, research the article. They won't go deep. They won't look for sources. Instead, you hear an article, you get the headline, which is of course sensational. And then what do you do? You sound significant. So you tell your friend, did you hear about this? Right. And all of a sudden you're having this wrong, incorrect surface level conversation and it's really causing a lot of pain. It, it was extremely painful and I was not there yet, but I remember watching it and I remember thinking, this is a really good movie and SeaWorld's really in trouble from this, even though I know it's not true. I mean, Jim Atch, I know their former CEO, he was a class act. SeaWorld, it, just like you said, you can't, you gotta have the other side of the story. And what was really unfortunate is CNN bought the rights to Blackfish. So here is a purported news agency, which brand represents the news, and they're running a movie 500 times a year that would not pass a single journalistic standard. I mean, the only SeaWorld employees they had to comment were fired employees who were fired for cause, fired for violating safety issues, and they made a career bad-mouthing SeaWorld. But the the problem, the business problem for entrepreneurs is what I said, the biggest asset, Shamu, became our biggest liability. And that is a really hard pivot. And, and then also zoos and aquariums are becoming lesser and lesser a thing. And we all know Barnum and Bailey Circus shut down. I was in constant contact with their CEO. And uh, Ken's a very, very bright guy. And he fought it, but knew it was a tidal wave he wasn't going to be able to overcome. And I remember never forget, he called me after he shut the circus down. He said, I'm sorry, but you know, every, every Pete a dollar now is not split anymore between us and you. It's going to be a, you know, SeaWorld became the bullseye. And so I came into a situation that um, the previous CEO had been let go. Jim had been asked to leave because the stock had dropped 50%. The board felt more need to be done to fight the film, whatever. I don't know the rationale, but I was recruited from my other position. And, you know, basically came in with uh, a plan of what we had to do to shift the culture, shift the brand to a new thing and uh, just change the guest experience in a rapid, a rapid time frame when at the same time, because of Blackfish and legislation, I forgot to mention that legislation was coming out against us that would make, uh, would make, <coughs> excuse me, breeding illegal in California. And we had also SEC and 
DOJ investigations against the company, meaning Justice Department and Securities Exchange. Wow. Comments made by previous management before I got there. Um, so literally half my team was going to New York every other weekend interviewing with lawyers. Some of them were afraid they might go to jail. None of them ever did. There was no, it was, none of it was true, but still it's a distraction. We oh, had, it's a money suck, a time suck, an emotion suck. It's everything. Well, that, and we had a, one, you know, a lot, of, a lot of bad things. And I can go into that if we have time, but to set up the, the learning for your entrepreneurs, um, our greatest asset was our greatest liability. The research had said yes. that never had I seen a brand drop in all my years. Literally, Matt, we had almost 70% trustworthiness with the American public. And within not even two years, it had dropped down to only 35% trustworthiness because Blackfish had been seen, because they read about the legislation, et cetera. So that's the environment I came into. And I think, um, if you don't mind, I mean, I'll just kind of hit the main goals and just try, I'll try to draw a leadership lesson for your group. But is that okay if I go down that path? But yeah, for sure. For sure. And just before you do, I want to real quick to circle back to one thing and then we'll come back to it. Now the park had been owned and bought by Anheuser-Busch for a number of years or Bush Entertainment. And at this point, how theme park-esque is it? I want to talk about kind of the parallels of going from a marine rescue underwater restaurant to really changing gears. And I think in, in any business, you're again, you're changing what's the principal thing you're delivering. And again, I remember going to SeaWorld. It's like, yeah, there's the shows, but then all of a sudden there's these roller coasters and you're not competing with Long Beach Aquarium anymore or whoever it is. Now you're competing with Six Flags, the Carnival, uh, Disney, uh, you know, Universal Parks, whatever it is. At what, when, when you came in, when this was happening, if you had to guess, or maybe there's a statistic for it, how much product emphasis is or revenue share, whatever statistic you want to use was geared towards why are people coming to the door? I guess is my question. When you came in, are most people coming in the door because it's a theme park and they want to do normal theme park stuff of food and rides? Or is it, I want to go see the shows and this is more like the zoo sort of experience. Why are people coming in? Because you said your greatest asset becomes your greatest liability yeah. And if 90% of the reason you're there is for the killer whales and 10% is the rides versus the other way around, that's certainly a big difference of strategy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's very well said. It, it's, and this is what made this situation hard. It had to be a dramatic change. And yet theme parks don't change quickly. Everything that you see at a Disney or a university or a SeaWorld, it's, it's three to five years in the planning and making, maybe longer. I mean, if it's Harry Potter land, it's probably seven plus years. So you can't pivot the, the battleship quickly, but what, because all the data said it wasn't just blackfish, people's mind shifts had been changing to animals under human care, including zoos, aquariums, everybody is, there's some struggle there. The circus, as you mentioned, everything. So to stay in that, to stay in that entirely is not the rising tide for the future. And so we shifted. We, our, our vision, to answer your question, was to be all about animals so that when it was called Park to Planet, when, when you come to the park, you help save the planet. So a dollar, you know, $10 out of a $100 day goes to help uh, ocean, ocean causes. That was the shift. And everything we would do would relate to that, but it didn't have to be a live animal entertainment show. 
it would be that and it would be festivals about that. So we might have an, we had a electric ocean festival that we put in at night to, to draw night traffic and have glow and fun. But it was all about the ocean. Or we would add a Christmas festival and we, we, we got um, Sesame Street and Rudolph, but yet we still tied it. They would be interacting with some of our animals and, and we would somehow tie a loose net together. But we also had to start adding roller coasters and had for years because um, the youth weren't as interested in the animal shows as they used to be. They, they love coasters and it was more either younger children or adults that like the animals, but the teenagers were all about rides. So we, we added diversity just to, we still had the animal shows, but we had to add diversity in. We did it really, really rapidly. It had already started some before I got there, but I moved a lot more on festivals and other diversification. What, what, but, what circle, what year roughly was that first pivot of like roller coasters? Let's get rides in this thing. It's no longer just a show. It's something that people are going to engage in. It, it started at the bush parks much before. The bush parks have had them forever. So Anheuser-Busch, when they bought SeaWorld for years, they stayed pretty much just animal shows. Large pools, large venues with a lot of water for dolphins and whales and manatees or sea lions to be seen. It wasn't until probably you know five-ish years before I arrived that they started adding coasters just to have more variety because the thing, the thing with the shows is they don't change that often, right? It, it, if you come and have seen it once for the season, you've pretty much seen it for the season. So to get repeat business back throughout the year, which is key in the theme park business to sell season passes, they started that process. Under, uh, when I was there, we accelerated it, and they're still doing it today to add more rides, more festivals, more concerts, more other things to add diversity. But that came that came to SeaWorld much later than it was at Anheuser-Busch. Right. So then when you come in now, um, you you got, we, we talked about this in, in part one, but you, I wouldn't say poached, but you got asked, <laughs> terrible play on words, uh, but you got asked to come in as a CEO and say, hey, we, they knew they were in trouble at this point. They knew it was a turnaround. So they weren't just looking for a, the next CEO. They were looking for someone who could turn something around and a lot of your, obviously your experience at Saab, but then your experience in the theme park industry for over a decade um, with, you know, every, the entertainment businesses that own the Harlem Globetrotters and Dolly Parton World and, and all these places in between. When you came in, I'm betting you probably had some ideas. You probably were like, okay, from the outside in, fresh eyes, here's things we need to change. Here's things we need to implement. This is something that's really good. We could build this more. Maybe you have those kind of ideas. How did you walk in as the quote unquote outsider with the team that existed in the middle of all this turbulence and get your ideas across without being threatening, without kicking people out? I'm sure some of that had to happen. I'm sure there was some turnover, et cetera. But what was your general approach? And especially tying back to your book, Love Works, I understand going from um, working in the branch of GM, which was a very different experience versus what you learned at the theme park industry where you got to bring in love and culture and, and, and connection. How did you go in as the outsider to that, to that turnaround group and bring in your culture of yeah, love works? That's a great idea or a great question. I, first of all, that's part of the reason I even wanted to go to SeaWorld is I, as we talked about a little bit in the previous um, conversation, certainly well outlined in the book, love works. I loved it at Hershey. And 
I have nothing but positives about that organization, the leadership, the owners. I wanted to execute Love Works in a for-profit entity because there's no doubt it's harder in a, a public company because you have so many owners, it's harder to get alignment with a family or a small group of owners, you can get alignment more quickly. And if you don't have alignment on the top in anything, it makes it difficult, especially in culture, which shifting a culture from a not so hot guest experience or owner experience, I'm sorry, or, or employee experience to a great one takes about three years. So the first thing I did, and I would, this is good advice for any entrepreneur who's working with private equity or any other owner that's not themselves, is I, I was in the negotiation, everything was two years, like two years, if I, they can fire me in two years and I get a two year severance. I fought for three years hard and got it because I knew it would take three years. And if they didn't give me three years, um, I wasn't going to be able to turn this ship around because it was just, there's too many problems and it was too big and theme parks don't shift that quickly other than if you slash price and that's never a good thing to do for a long term. That's very short term. And what you're talking about is 18 months saying they go, Hey, maybe it's worse than ever. So to seem because you've been turning things around and you might be spending more to fix a problem over here. But 18 months in, they're saying, Hey, what did you do to us? You're like, no, give me the long term to be able to do something real. Yeah. So, but you did. I, yeah, I did. And we'll get to that towards the end. I mean, I ended up staying 2.8 years. I didn't make it three, um, but that's just because new ownership came in and they didn't, hadn't made the same commitment. But the board was really committed to the plan. To answer your question, what I did, I, I did have a thesis actually to interview for the job. I had like a 10 point plan, but um, in, in very short, I'm not going to go through the 10 points, but it was basically change the branding experience from it's not about animal entertainment. It's about the cause orientation, the parked planet. That was a thesis up front. Fixed the guest experience, which was not up to par with some of its competitors. That's where LoveWorks really came in. Where LoveWorks was really successful was with the employee group. We, we did a lot to educate them on all that SeaWorld did. We taught them how to answer the questions they were getting from those who had watched the CNN or Blackfish because they were just feeling beat up. They were getting negative comments from guests. They were people throwing things at them sometimes from the street. We had PETA protesting at the gate who would hassle them coming to and from work. So they were pretty unhappy when, and, and Jack Roddy, my head of, of HR did a great job of the more we communicated, the more they were emboldened to fight back for SeaWorld. So that was a big one. And so then actually the, educating the team and educating the employees and giving them the resources and encouraging them. Yes. Yeah, we did. We spent a lot of time making sure they knew that we were the biggest marine mammal rescue organization. And we ended up fixing our parks where all our rescue stuff used to be behind the scenes. And right. Stuff and we fixed it all up, painted it. We didn't spend much money, but we painted it and we opened it up to the public. So it became part of our attraction period. You could walk back and watch the animals getting operated on from through a window. But, you know, we open it up and, and to our employees so they could see it happen. I mean, I've been going on a Sunday morning and one of our vets was in there operating on some animal or bird that had been injured you know, at seven in the morning on a Sunday. I mean, they were so dedicated, but we had to open that up. So the love works of caring about them, trusting them, being truthful to them was all key. Um, so those were, and then with the, with the guest experience, 
It was all the things I already mentioned, the shifting of all the product. Those were the main three to four things we were focused on. That's really powerful. And sorry to interrupt, Joel, but um, the the, the opening up the behind the scenes, you know, I, I think about this a lot in leadership when the old paradigm is definitely that of holding the armor, you know, being right. the, I, I talked about this on, on, um, on a TV show sometime recently about kind of the Iron Man principle, right? About how we always feel like we have to be Iron Man and hold the armor yeah. around. And yeah. it seems to me as I think about, you know, SeaWorld and other businesses, you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, even two thousands, there's this, for some reason, you don't know why, but it's like, well, the, all the veterinary stuff, well, that's behind the scenes. That's, closer to the vest? Why would you share that? There's not, I'll bet you there's not even really a reason for it, right? And well, there's, there's a risk to it, right? They there's might, a risk. They, they might see something happen. They might see an animal die on the operating table. Oh, good call. They might, they might, but look, I, I kept my board informed on this stuff. They were all for it. It's like, show them who we are. We are not the evil Satan that PETA is trying to paint us to be, or the animal activists. Yes, there are some tough ethical issues about whether you should breed or release, um, you know, some of these marine mammal issues and, but, but not the vast majority of what SeaWorld did. And there's Um, tough ethical questions in almost any business. And if you're going to get your hands, not dirty, it's the wrong word too, but if you're going to get your hands involved in something that has some cultural political charge, right, you're going to be helping uh, in the gender space, you're going to be helping in the animal rescue space or helping in the political space there's certainly, you're already knowing there's going to be controversial decisions to make, but to show, like, I didn't know how many vets SeaWorld employees, or I didn't know how many, you know, the, not just animal trainers, but all the rest of the work that goes into it. So I think that's a phenomenal thing. So you're, you're showcasing the inside, you're showcasing the vulnerability and you're showcasing behind the scenes. I think yes. you'll learn a lot about showing behind the scenes. I think of a restaurant where, you know, I love those restaurants where they knock the wall down for the kitchen and dining room and there's the chefs and there's my food and there's my ingredients. There's something too there where the chef goes, okay, everyone's watching me, but that also means I get transparency. <laughs> it's interesting. You, you use that analogy, Matt, cause that was the exact analogy that my, my creative director and I used to our team to sell the idea. It's like, look at the popular restaurants today. You see everything. And there is risk to that, right? They sure. may drop them on the floor and some guy, you know, forgets to wash it or fix it up and uses it. Who knows what the issues are? But we had that risk, but it worked really well. And the, the main principle is to go in, even though I had a plan, I listened for the first 60, 90 days. I went around with the plan in my head, but I asked Socratic questions to see where they all stood without them knowing where I stood so I could get the truth because, and that's another principle, I think from the book and from just how to go into a tough situation, you have to foster an environment where there is truthfulness. That's one of the words of love in the book, but talking first as the top leader doesn't engender getting truthfulness because everybody's political to some degree and they're going to couch their answers accordingly. That's one of the things Jack taught me is to, to talk last and listen first. And I got a lot of information from those small group sessions with our employees as I was evolving the plan. And, uh, you know, about 60 days in had my, my, my second board meeting where I really shared the plan in its totality. And so it was only 60, 90 days in where the board had basically bought into the plan, but it, it took a lot of listening and I adapted from my original thesis when I interviewed to, 
uh, what, what did I hear from the employees that would change that? And could, could you give me maybe an example of something that you, walking in from the outside, you thought this is for sure something we have to do. And then when you really get the environment and the lay of the land, you know, they say the battle plan changes when the first boot hits the ground. What's an example of maybe something with the battle plan changing? You thought, man, if I did it that way, the way I thought was right, that would have been terrible. Instead, right. we got to do it differently. I underestimated coming in the, the intensity of the dislike, hatred, anger of the, let's say, 20% of the, the average person that might be against animals in captivity. I mean, it was a... That we were their only thought, it seemed like, to attack and tear down. And it took a lot more to neutralize that. And it took a lot longer to get our message out in front. And I, I don't know that I ever was completely successful at that because it's a process. I can tell you by the time I left, there were more positives than negatives coming out about SeaWorld. But I, when I first got there, it, was, it felt like it was 100 to 1 negative to positive. So I went in thinking, all we have to do is spend. X amount of dollars with this kind of messaging and it will break through. I underestimated it was going to take three to four times in dollars and time and effort to overcome the constant wave of negativity on Twitter, on Facebook. I mean, the animal rights groups are, they're vervent. And again, I don't question their heart, but I, I do question some of the tactics. I, I um, couldn't agree with you more. And, and I see that with a lot of organizations and I'll shout out, I think PETA, Greenpeace, there's a lot of organizations that are great for the environment, great for animals, great for people. And there are many ways to go about it. And sometimes it's, it's like the narrative we tell ourselves, right? The narrative for one organization is there's the oppressed and the oppressors. And we got to tear down the oppressors because they're wrong and they're evil. And if the oppressors live, then everyone will be oppressed. But that's, that's, not, the, that's, a, not, that's not a true narrative. Because when you tear that down, someone else is there. And that's not, even, that's not the life I live. That's not the world I see. I see a world yeah. far more complex than, you know, a thousand years ago with the oppressed and the oppressors, right? So to keep telling that archaic narrative in business and environment and human, you know, conditioning, I think it's just asinine. And, and it's wrong. It is wrong. And unfortunately, it's easy. And so sloppy, lazy minds can come to what's easy. And it's easy to communicate the every victim needs a villain. And so SeaWorld was the villain and the poor animal was the victim, which, you know, it, it is not true. But um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give another example, though, to exactly back up what you talked about. I had a very strong feeling that we had to get out in front of the dialogue. We had to try to help people understand the complexities of the issues. So that's why... Um, I reached out to the CEO of the Humane Society, Wayne Paselli, who they were adversaries of ours and they were very negative towards us. And people inside of SeaWorld were very negative towards the Humane Society. So Wayne and I, without getting anybody's approval, because they wouldn't have approved it, we met incognito basically in Washington, D.C. for a number of months, developing a friendship first so we could trust each other. But here's where out of the book, the, you know, the trustworthiness issue I had to trust him to have some of our best interests in mind because he was also taking a risk of his donor base. But we discussed these issues and we came up with a plan. And basically the plan was if we, if we would stop breeding of killer whales, they would support us and they would, they would ask for no further changes. That would give us 50 years to transition our model as the whales started to pass away. 
And the only reason uh, I should add, we were going to get outlawed in California. The legislation count was against us. So then the question became, if we're going to get legislated out in California from breeding, is it going to move east and cover the rest of the country? Sure. My, me and my board, or my, my board and I felt that it would move east and that we need to deal with this holistically. So that's why we went to Wayne and agreed to this. And so as we went on all the talk shows and all the radio shows and all the podcasts for literally the next six months, he and I together went on and we talked about these complex issues. And you know, we made some further changes like healthier food and uh, cage-free eggs, some things that you know, consumers were wanting, we shifted. But I give that example because in this huge paradox that we had to shift from animal entertainment to an animal cause company, we had to partner with a, an adversary. We had to have messaging consistently run. And that's the other thing I underestimated is not only do we have to pivot, we had to keep communicating that pivot every month, every month, every day, every week. Every time we drop back on the communication of this pivot and this announcement, our, our negative ratings started to climb up again. And so we had to keep pounding that positive message and our rescue message and how many animals we rescued and what we're going to do for the future. But it, I underestimated the time of that and the cost of that. Um, the, the other thing I'll, I'll say that I, it's not a direct answer to what you just said, but it's so important for your listeners to hear. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I actually think I spent too much time on the vision piece and the shifting piece. I'm very strategic and I'm, I'm very creative and I worked really well with the board to get there extremely fast. Like within 90 days we had the plan and we were starting to implement it. But at the same time, our EBITDA, our cash flow had dropped in half from the attendance impact of Blackfish and legislation, all that. So we're cutting costs. We had three massive layoffs. We're trying to help employee morale in the midst of all that. Um, I let all the distractions like SEC and DOJ investigation and PETA's attacks and going to Washington to fight the legislation. I should have delegated more of that so that I could make sure the short-term stuff was also completely moving light speed as well as the vision. Because in the end of the day, if we could have just, um, if my second year had been flat, I know I would still be there because we started picking up again at the end of that second year. But we had two hurricanes and you know, shut down about um, 10 days, which caused us to, that one in and of itself caused us to be down slightly. And the board was not happy about that. And then, then the new activists came in. And that's where that's a different story. If we and want that was to a whole another a whole another yeah. round of it. The, the main the, the point of the balance between what's in front of you today that has to be fixed and how you have to pivot the vision. That's something everybody's feeling right now because of coronavirus or any crisis you go into. You have to balance those. And my lesson learned is you can't you can't fail at all or be unsuccessful or miss your goals on the short term. Whereas the vision piece might be able to slip a little bit. I nailed the vision and moved fast, but um, I, I you know, should have focused harder on, on recovering from those hurricanes faster and so forth. Some of that I can't control, but that's a really important learning. Well, yeah, um, to say hurricanes hit or even like, you know, who's running things today, you know, for the board to to look at 
well, hang on. Like, how are they responding to the whole year of 2020 and the the devastation economically of that? It's like, well, hang on. How do you, how does anybody do that really well? And a quick well, question on, on the, on the heels of what you just talked about. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I could, um, go ahead. Well, what, what I'm interested about too is, so you talked about kind of keeping that voice up, right? With, hey, here's what we're really about. In your mind, in your estimation, and this isn't just for SeaWorld, this is anywhere in your leadership. In your book, Love Works, clearly it's let's bring a love message, a culture message, you're a vision guy. So it's like, this is what we are about rather than this is what we're not about. How, if somebody is attacking, if, if you have a, a negative customer experience, whatever the case may be, how much energy emotionally do you think you need to put into defending or arguing or saying that's not right versus having the voice of, let me tell you what this is. And I think that's not just in business, but even like interpersonal relationships. When someone says, how could you, you terrible so-and-so, how much do you say, Hey, that's wrong versus let me share what I really mean. That makes sense. Yeah. It's, we definitely took the positive approach. I, I, I think that trustworthiness, which is one of the words of, of yes. or truthfulness, one of the words of love is you, you have to be truthful, but you don't have to attack the other side. So even when we proved PETA's points wrong, we went positively with a message. Um, although there, uh, sometimes in their, their circle, which was Twitter, we would counter exactly what they were saying and they, we would call them out on it. But we did that in a very targeted fashion with very specific social media, the broad messaging to the public was always positive and it was always aspirational because I don't think, I don't think anybody really loves to hear other people being criticized that much. Um, or if they do, it's just not a positive way to spend the energy. So I agree with you. We did not, we did not spend a lot of time on the negatives. Just the, 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 the overarching message is vision positive. This is what I am about. And then targeted specifically when necessary, you'd say like a debater, that's incorrect for this reason. And would you circle back and say, and this is what it actually is. This is what we really are about. We had specific people on the team that all they did was respond to PETA's negative messaging and respond with the positives. You know, we, and that's, we had to do that, but it was very targeted. I think that's a good lesson for, for anybody. Um, I think, the, another huge lesson, which it probably makes just common sense, but I'm going to say it because it's important for entrepreneurs, especially who are workaholics, they have a vision. Oh, I can't wait to hear this one. They want to go at it, but, <laughs> um, you know, I think we have to be careful who we're trying to please. The biggest mistakes I made in my own life is when I was trying to please either somebody else I wanted their affirmation or their accolades, or I didn't want to be a failure. Um, And I gave up things that were truly more important to me, like my family, my, my relationship with kids or friends. And I got very unhealthy and I'm 60 now. And I can tell you in my mid fifties, I was in a very, very unhealthy place. Um, And it caused bad decision-making too. Not in a business standpoint, from a business standpoint, but I became unhealthy with my board because it was so dysfunctional and they were treating me poorly, a couple of them, not all of them, that 
it got to the point where there were a lot of arguments and shouting matches. And that is just not me at all. It's not who I am, but it's because I was so upset at their treatment of me and the other people. I, I became unhealthy in my response to them. And, um, I just would, I would encourage people to stay balanced, know who you're really trying to please. Is it your creator, which for me, it's my creator. Is it for, uh, is it your spouse or your significant other? And and don't just say it, behave that way because our intentions are not how we're felt by other people, the impact we have on other people. And it took me literally, you know, going through uh, my first marriage and a, a job at SeaWorld to realize that you know, the impact I was having on them was not healthy. and. Um, it just cost me a lot. So, you know, so many times we're, we're going after the affirmation of people we don't even necessarily like or care for, or we're so afraid of failure. Bottom line of what I've just said the last minute and a half is I, from a world standpoint, I failed. I don't feel like I failed. SeaWorld turned around the year I was, the year I would left in February, it had a great 2018, but I wasn't there to enjoy it. I, I knew it was going to happen. So it can be looked at as a failure because I was asked to leave by a board member. My marriage failed, which is a failure. But on the on the backside of both of those failures, Matt, I'm I'm the most content and happy that I've ever been because I have failed now. And it's okay to be. <laughs> Nothing bad happens, right? No one's thinking about us as much as we think they are. That's right. And you learn from it. And you move on. And I'm a better person now. I'm a more truthful person. I'm a more trusting person. I'm a much more patient person. So don't don't lose what you really want to to you know get some success that doesn't even really matter. So I wish I had said that crisper, but you get the point. Oh, I, that that was that was crisp to me, my friend. Um, I think there's something too so powerful about when you go in and like, and fail and, or however you want to phrase that, I don't really care. But when you go in and you do something the best you can and you look at the result and you don't like it, there's something about that honesty of like, all right, this is me. This is what happened. I don't have to guess anymore. I don't have to wonder anymore. Right. This was my run at SeaWorld. This was my run at Saab. This was even my run in the relationship. This is what happened. And now I don't need to wonder if it could be this, it could be that. This is the outcome that's happened based on me doing the best I could. Okay, so now what? All right. And then you decide. That, what's very, forward. that was very articulate. It's extremely hard to do. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about it. Because <laughs> most of us don't it's forgive good. ourselves. You know, it's hard to forgive ourselves. And as entrepreneurs and leaders, and spouses and significant others, we have to be able to forgive ourselves to move on. But, but you, you know that it's just hard to do. Well, and, and what, what a wonderful way to tie it back, Joel, as we wrap up here is you got to be able to forgive yourself. And a huge part of love, you know, it says, and there's a good book that many people read that says, um, you don't, love doesn't hold records of wrong. And mm -hmm. that includes not just other people, I would say, but it includes ourselves right? That, that love is about forgiveness and be able to bring that into the environment, you know, and bring 
your own forgiveness into that. Does that have been a very important aspect for you as well? Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people, if they didn't hear the first podcast or the, the book Love Works, it sounds like it's the feeling. It's not a feeling. That's, that's, there's four Greek words for love and that's eros. That's the emotion that we Americans think of as love. Very good. This love was agape in the Bible and in in, in it was Greek. And it's a Greek word that's a verb and it's how you behave towards other, other people. It has nothing to do with how you feel. You can treat people with agape love and dislike them actually. And you cannot get along with them, but you still treat them with respect and dignity and truthfulness and trustworthiness. And what it does, I found from being a Hershen, it builds a culture that's so incredible that the turnover is almost non-existent. Our engagement scores were higher than anybody else in the industry. The average engagement score, Matt, you may know this, in, in, the, in the country is only 30% top box score according to Gallup. Wow, I didn't realize that. It, it's very low. In, in the Hershen properties, when we implemented the Love Works culture, it would go between 70 and 80% after three years. It took three years to get there. So for those listening, it's not, there's nothing soft about the Love Works culture. It gets results. It's actually harder to do than just leading by the numbers because you're not just looking at what people do. You're looking at how they behave. And that's an additional layer of discussion and measurement. And all those processes are important, but I can guarantee any of the listeners, if they're, they're interested, the book gives a good overview and there's more resources if they need it. But um, yeah, and I love in the book, you also get into not just like the, because the book is Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles of Effective Leadership. But again, you get into explaining the seven principles, the seven parts of, of the love as a verb, as an action, as a practical implementation uh, process that takes time for trust to be built and so forth. But you also get into those practical applications of it, right? How exactly do you do this in your culture? How exactly do you have that conversation that makes somebody turn that around? So there's so much to get into. You can find out more too at loveworksbyjoelmanby.com. And Manby is M-A-N-B-Y, like man by. Uh, loveworksbyjoelmanby.com. You can grab the book. And then you also have, and this is part of what I wanted to, to bring here as we kind of come around the final lap here, Joel. <laughs> Thank you for your time so far today. Yeah. Um, you have a three-part series that you've created on crisis leadership, and you're certainly a voice um, and someone with the experience of leading through business crisis and others. Um, and you can, uh, get, you can find that at joelmanby.com. Can you tell me a little bit about what's inside the three parts of yeah, if, crisis if, if, leadership? If you just go to joelmanby.com, it'll, it'll ask for an opt-in. As long as you do that, you get a three-part video series. And basically, in each video, goes through the seven words of love from LoveWorks and how it is used in a crisis. And so it's, it's very uh, practical and specific. It gives some big picture thoughts on leading with love in a crisis. So I hope, hope they enjoy it. Outstanding. We certainly will. Well, Joel, thank you again for uh, taking all the time with us. Thank you for doing a part two. Um, I'll say let's do this again, but we just did this. So I, I'd love to uh, perhaps yeah, have you on at some point. Maybe something else happens in the world and we can have a little uh, discussion about it. Uh, I enjoy it. I, I hope things are good in Grand Rapids. They sure are. Thanks so much, Joel.